Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. 500 years ago, in February of 1519, Hernán Cortés set out from Cuba with an expeditionary force heading for a confrontation with Mexico, rulers of the Aztec Empire. Two years later, with the sacking of the capital, Tenochtitlan, the Spanish conquest was complete. Over the course of the next century, much of the history and culture of the Aztecs was lost in the catastrophic aftermath of the invasion. But what remained was pieced together by indigenous descendants who helped construct an epic history of the Aztec civilization. My guest today is Peter Valela, a historian of colonial Mexico and a fellow at the National Humanities Center. This year, he is working on a project that recovers these 16th and 17th century accounts of the pre-conquest Aztec past, creatively combining disparate elements to forge a powerful historical account of indigenous accomplishment that has become a central component of Mexican national identity. Peter, welcome to this podcast, and thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Peter, you examined the histories that were constructed by the Nahua in the immediate post-conquest period. Can you set the stage for us a bit? What was life like for these people, and what might have been the living conditions in central Mexico at that time after the conquest? Yeah, so as you would imagine in something like this, the changes were enormous, and the upheavals were uh, very disorienting uh, on on a lot of levels. Um, The most important one being demographic collapse, an extreme demographic collapse, central Mexico was um, by some measures the most densely populated portion of the American continent on the eve of European invasions. And over the course of the first century of European rule suffered something like three combined black deaths. Um, uh, And these happened in inexorable recurring waves about one every decade for the first hundred years. This causes mass migration, as towns uh, fall into ruin, um, you start to see ghost towns appearing, uh, appearing throughout the landscape. Under the Spanish uh, uh, colonial system that was set up, you also had extreme cultural dislocation, a systematic program of evangelization, Christianization, um, that, uh, that uh, required people to give up old ways of life and old beliefs. Um, And then at the economic level, you have the integration of indigenous peoples into the emerging Atlantic world economy, which requires them to change the way they live. They have to plant new crops. They have to learn to sell things in new markets. And so the big picture of the 16th century is one of radical, inexorable upheaval. At the day-to-day level, and this is where I think um, my research um, really starts to pinpoint um, what's going on, At the day-to-day level, you actually maybe counterintuitively find that change is quite slow. Uh, At the distance of 500 years, we can sense that this was very rapid, but the big changes that occur are mostly generational, um, especially outside the major cities where there were large Spanish populations. Um, The Spaniards are actually a very tiny minority, even with all this demographic collapse. Um, and they're very incapable of forcing immediate cultural change on the, on, on the indigenous population. So if you measure cultural change in terms of language, uh, the retention of language and, the, and certain customs, it actually proceeds a lot more slowly than we might imagine. 
part of what you do is you're recovering the kind of affective landscape after the conquest, and you just spoke very powerfully about how it was really an environment of loss and ruin. How do you get at this dimension in your work? How do you do that? Some of it is very explicit. At no point in this history were the Nawas and their leaders silent. Uh, in their letters to the king, in their letters to the bishops, in their letters to each other, in their legal um, uh, testimonials, they very explicitly claimed that they had been dispossessed. This was something that they were very conscious of. This is, I, uh, I think of it as uh, uh, similar to the way um, maybe the French aristocracy felt after the French Revolution or any kind of dispossessed aristocracy. They have these very powerful memories of once having been in control, and they no longer are. So they're very uh, explicit about this sense of loss, um, and they are upset about it, as you can imagine. Some of it is subtextual in, in, in politically and ideologically relevant ways. For example, you find... In uh, uh, some accounts, you will have Nawas remembering the pre-Hispanic period as a time of great longevity and health, which comparatively it was, um, but it's all in contrast. So you have this sense that things used to be better, and now they aren't. Uh, one thing that I am also trying to pay attention to that I think um, gets forgotten a lot is that the physical environment in which they lived was also decaying. As the population declined, the bridges collapsed. Uh, their buildings fell into ruin. Um, whole neighborhoods were reclaimed by the forest. Uh, old farmlands went fallow. So there was a sense, there were a real sense of, of living in a time of decline and decay, and that the uh, um, combined with memories of grandeur. And it's this contrast that I think really inspires some of the richest uh, memories and histories at this time. So when you look at the narratives that they recovered about their past and this kind of epic history that they constructed of their immediate past, what else can you tell us about that story? It sounds like it was almost a refuge for the people to think about their glorious past compared to their pretty dismal present conditions. I think it was. Um, a refuge in the sense that it it was a source of pride and unity at a time of, uh, of uh, dislocation and upheaval. But more than that, I also think it was politically necessary. What I mean to say is, is that what's always fascinated me about uh, pre-Hispanic Mexican history in the as it's told in the colonial period and up to today is it's never irrelevant. It never becomes the stuff of curiosity and antiquarianism. It's not something that is uh, is uh, relegated to museums and and people who are interested in those sort of things. It's always immediately relevant. Remembering the the greatness of pre-Hispanic uh, Mexico is is important for a lot of the leaders of Nahua Mexico under the Spanish rule because that's the basis for their claims to continued. Uh, rights under the Spanish um, uh, uh, under the Spanish Empire. The Spanish Empire explicitly pledged to respect historic rights to lands and resources um, that could be based on history. And so, by telling these stories, the Nahuas were also holding Spanish rulers to account and and forcing them to live up to their promises. So part of the conquest was that they experienced this kind of devastation at the hands of the Spanish. Um, 
uh, invaders. And the other part, though, was that they, or as part of that, um, they came into contact with a different religion as well. So part of it is um, that Christianity is brought with um, the conquerors. How did these accounts of the Nawa's history before contact with the Christians, how is that inflected by this Christian lens um, that's imposed on them? Uh, brought to them. It was the effect of Christianity on Nawa memories of and, and accounts of the past is enormous. The most prolific scribes and writers among the Nawas in the 16th and 17th century were educated by um, Franciscan friars and the other religious orders that came in with the Spaniards, um, meaning they were Christians and they were writing about their non-Christian ancestors. This is a fascinating dynamic. Uh, it creates a sort of disjuncture um, that is um, really apparent in the texts. Some examples are, um, I pay a lot of attention to when they're using the first person or the third person. Who are the Aztecs to, to, to the colonial Nawas? Are they we? Are they us? Or are they they and them? One of the things I'm trying to do is to chart the historical development, the increasing use of the third person, um, and portraying the historical Aztecs as a different people. I think it happens around 1580 for some reason. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's actually really superficial, though. Uh, that is, you'll read a text that is clearly Nahua, that is clearly defined by a pre-Hispanic um, memory or, or oral tradition that is not Christian in any recognizable way, but that sort of appends some Christian boilerplate to the beginning or the end of it. Um, and that, to me, is a sign of, um, you know, how people reconcile these two aspects of, of who they are, their, their ancestral identity and their contemporary identity. There are some texts where, uh, that were compiled under the um, auspices of the friars, and the friars would go in afterwards and add disclaimers that say, well, all of this, of course, is complete nonsense that you've just read. You're not to believe this. We're just uh, we're letting them say this because it's important for us to learn about this history. Um, but we aren't to um, believe anything that they that they just wrote. So the 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 effect of Christianity on on perceptions of the past uh, is is very important. Mm -hmm. And in terms of sources, as they're writing these histories, what are they using to remember their past before this chaotic time of contact? This gets to the core, I think, of, of what's important about this research, which is the fact that in all of the Americas um, at, the, at the time of, uh, of uh, European contact, Mesoamerica had perhaps the most developed and elaborate tradition of written literacy. Um, so they, the Nahuas that were working in the colonial period had a long, a deep, and an already ancient tradition that they were, that they were building from and adding to. Um, there was a tradition of, of uh, annals keeping uh, called the Shuf Powali, which, was, uh, which literally just means year count, where they would list the important events that happened year by year. And they also had a very elaborate oral tradition in which trained uh, historians, essentially, would, um, would perform oral performances before the community. And these were mostly nationalistic histories. They told people where the community came from, its origins, how they came to be in the place where they were. So when the Spaniards arrived, these were not people without history, to use the old phrase. These were people who had a long and established tradition of history and could actually show their colonizers physical 
written documents that contained that history, when they came into contact with, say, um, the alphabet, the Roman alphabet, um, and, and written texts based on the Roman alphabet, a lot of times it seems that the Nawas used that to elaborate and improve or build upon the tradition that was already there. This was not a new tradition. This was not a new idea. History keeping was not new to them. In your work, you, you call this a first draft of Aztec history. What can you tell us about how subsequent drafts have evolved to tell the story of Mexican, Mexican antiquity? And what role do these accounts continue to play in our understandings of Mexican identity and history? After about 1600, which is about 80 years after the, the, the Spanish conquest, almost all of the widely disseminated accounts of the pre-Hispanic past echo these first accounts that appear at the very end of the 16th century. Um, and this is the imperial story of Tenochtitlan. This is the story of uh, um, an impoverished, wandering people from the desert wastelands of the north who found their way into the densely populated basin of Mexico, what's now Mexico City, and founded this great empire. This is a very powerful and very um, uh, enduring story. It's an epic. It becomes the story of the nation of Mexico. The nation of Mexico stretches at the time of independence from, you know, from San Francisco Bay Area all the way to, to Guatemala and into Central America. And yet they chose the name Mexico, which is the name of the island in which Tenochtitlan was founded. Uh, the symbol on the national flag of Mexico um, ever since 1821, when it became independent, has been the symbol of the founding of Tenochtitlan, the eagle atop the nopal cactus. The story uh, of the Aztec epic has, has been the core of Mexican national identity ever since, and it continues to be today, even in the 20th century, um, uh, if you look at Mexican popular art, if you look at popular art and literature in, among Chicano communities since the 1960s in the United States, you find Aztec themes. Uh, and there's just this very deep well of heroes and ideas and, and aesthetics to draw from. Um, and, you know, it's not uncommon for people today in Mexico and the United States to be named, uh, um, to have names from, from that period in Nahuatl, Citlali, Xochitl. Cuauhtémoc, Tenoch, um, these are all um, these are all Nahuatl names that 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 have arisen in the last couple of generations. What is your hope for this work? Well, um, broadly speaking, this is part of a, a, a long-term project of mine to to incorporate uh, non-European voices into an intellectual history traditionally understood. Um, in Latin America, in colonial Latin America, and up into modern Latin America, there's native and mixed heritage uh, leaders and writers that engaged in every major debate and controversy going back centuries. They wrote letters, they raised grievances, they, they appeared before the king in Madrid, um, uh, they contemplated the big religious and philosophical questions of each era, um, and they brought unique perspectives. Um, because they weren't as widely published, uh, because they weren't as well connected during the during uh, the early modern period, sometimes those voices are buried in archives, but they're there, and they participated in those debates. And so, so my job has been to sort of um, 
Uh, I'm part of a, a new movement in my field to uncover these voices and recognize them for what they were, native intellectuals. On a more particular level, I see my, my, this project as kind of recovering what I find to be a really unique intellectual world of 16th century Mexico before um, epidemics and before European immigration had really changed the demographic dynamics, I find a fascinatingly transculturated intellectual world in 16th century New Spain. That is to say, Nahua history, Nahua historical memories, Nahua language, Nahua, even Nahua spiritual ideals, interacting with Christian ideas, the Spanish language, the Roman alphabet, um, uh, and European bookmaking traditions to create an intellectual world that was profoundly transculturated and unique. Um, we think of the Spanish conquest as being very destructive, which it was, yet due in part to the, I think, to the deep historical memories of the Nahuas preserved in their books and in their oral traditions and the particular evangelical tactics of the, of the first Spanish uh, missionaries to arrive into Mexico, um, we see an actually remarkable amount of cross-cultural dialogue going on at that time. Um, that is, Spaniards who learn Nahuatl and Nahuas who learn Spanish and Latin and engage in theological disputations in Latin, um, uh, translating sacred texts into Nahuatl, uh, translating Nahua histories into Spanish. This is obvious when we think about Mexican culture and food and music, which is obviously profoundly transculturated. I think it happened to people's perceptions of the past as well. You, as a historian, have certain ideas about how history is constructed. Mm. How has the Nahua's approach to history surprised you, or, or what have you found it to be like? Among the 16th century Nahua's, uh, there were a select few from, from most of the largest communities who were um, educated by uh, Franciscan and uh, Franciscan friars and other, and other missionaries. They became trilinguals. Uh, they learned Spanish, they learned Latin, and they learned their own language in the Roman alphabet. Um, what's really fascinating, I think, is that rather than replace the historiographical tradition that they brought with them from their home communities. They used these new communicative technologies, uh, like the Roman alphabet and like um, um, and, and, and European paper, to build on and elaborate those historiographical traditions. A great example is something called the history, the, the Historia Tolteca Chichimeca, which was written in the um, about the, the, the 1550s and 1560s. This is a, uh, it's largely pictographic in the Mesoamerican tradition. Uh, it tells a story through its images, and yet it also has a partially linked but partially autonomous alphabetic Nahuatl text. It's very poetic, so it tries to capture the Nahuatl rhetorical style um, of oratory. And it also uses traditional Nahua painting techniques, but it also incorporates certain things learned from the European aesthetic tradition, for example, th uh, three-dimensional use of space. And so it's this, it's this work that 
it, it is profoundly transculturated, and it arose at a time in which destruction, it's this rich and beautiful text that was produced at a moment of extreme upheaval and destruction. And I find that to be a real testament to this human drive to preserve the past and to keep growing uh, despite, despite these struggles. Peter, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.